Section sixty of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book seventeen. Chapter four. An extraordinary scene between Sophia and her aunt. The lowing heifer and the bleating ewe, in herds and flocks, may ramble safe and unregarded through the pastures. These are indeed hereafter doomed to be the prey of men, yet many years are they suffered to enjoy their liberty undisturbed. But if a plump doe be discovered to have escaped from the forest, and to repose herself in some field or grove, the whole parish is presently alarmed, every man is ready to set his dogs after her, and, if she is preserved from the rest by the good squire, it is only that he may secure her for his own eating." I have often considered a very fine young woman of fortune and fashion, when first found strayed from the pale of her nursery, to be in pretty much the same situation with this doe. The town is immediately in an uproar. She is hunted from park to play, from court to assembly, from assembly to her own chamber, and rarely escapes a single season from the jaws of some devourer or other. For, if her friends protect her from some, it is only to deliver her over to one of their own choosing— often more disagreeable to her than any of the rest, while whole herds or flocks of other women, securely and scarce regarded, traverse the park, the play, the opera, and the assembly, and though, for the most part at least, they are at last devoured, yet for a long time do they wanton in liberty, without disturbance or control. Of all these paragons none ever tasted more of this persecution than poor Sophia. Her ill-stars were not contented with all that she had suffered on account of Bliffle. They now raised her another pursuer, who seemed likely to torment her no less than the other had done. For though her aunt was less violent, she was no less assiduous in teasing her than her father had been before. The servants were no sooner departed after dinner than Mrs. Weston, who had opened the matter to Sophia, informed her that she expected his lordship that very afternoon, and intended to take the first opportunity of leaving her alone with him. "'If you do, madam,' answered Sophia, with some spirit, "'I shall take the first opportunity of leaving him by himself.' "'How, madam?' cries the aunt. "'Is this the return you make me for my kindness in relieving you from your confinement at your father's?' "'You know, madam,' said Sophia, "'the cause of that confinement was a refusal to comply with my father in accepting a man I detested, and will my dear aunt, who hath relieved me from that distress, involve me in another, equally bad?' "'And do you think, then, madam,' answered Mrs. Weston, that there is no difference between my Lord Fellamar and Mr. Bliffle. "'Very little, in my opinion,' cries Sophia, "'and, if I must be condemned to one, I would certainly have the merit of sacrificing myself to my father's pleasure.' "'Then my pleasure, I find,' said the aunt, "'hath very little weight with you, but that consideration shall not move me. I act from nobler motives. The view of aggrandizing my family, of ennobling yourself, is what I proceed upon.' Have you no sense of ambition? Are there no charms in the thoughts of having a coronet on your coach? None, upon my honour, said Sophia. A pincushion upon my coach would please me just as well. Never mention honour, cries the aunt. It becomes not the mouth of such a wretch. I am sorry, niece, you force me to use these words, but I cannot bear your grovelling temper. You have none of the blood of the Westerns in you. But, however mean and base your own ideas are, you shall bring no imputation on mine. I will never suffer the world to say of me that I encouraged you in refusing one of the best matches in England. 
a match which, besides its advantage in fortune, would do honour to almost any family, and hath, indeed, in title, the advantage of ours.' "'Surely,' says Sophia, "'I am born deficient, and have not the senses with which other people are blessed. There must be certainly some sense which can relish the delights of sound and show which I have not.' for surely mankind would not labour so much, nor sacrifice so much for the obtaining, nor would they be so elate and proud with possessing what appeared to them, as it doth to me, the most insignificant of all trifles. "'No, no, miss,' cries the aunt, "'you are born with as many senses as other people. But I assure you, you are not born with a sufficient understanding to make a fool of me, or to expose my conduct to the world.' so i declare this to you upon my word and you know i believe how fixed my resolutions are unless you agree to see his lordship this afternoon i will with my own hands deliver you to-morrow morning to my brother and will never henceforth interfere with you nor see your face again sophia stood a few moments silent after this speech which was uttered in a most angry and peremptory tone and then bursting into tears she cried do with me, madam, whatever you please. I am the most miserable, undone wretch upon earth. If my dear aunt forsakes me, where shall I look for a protector? My dear niece, cries she, you will have a very good protector in his lordship, a protector whom nothing but a hankering after that vile fellow Jones can make you decline. Indeed, madam, said Sophia, you wrong me. How can you imagine, after what you have shown me, if I had ever any such thoughts, that I should not banish them for ever? If it will satisfy you, I will receive the sacrament upon it never to see his face again. But, child, dear child, said the aunt, be reasonable. Can you invent a single objection? I have already, I think, told you a sufficient objection, answered Sophia. What? cries the aunt. I remember none. Sure, madam, said Sophia. I told you he had used me in the rudest and vilest manner. Indeed, child, answered she, I never heard you, or did not understand you. But what do you mean by this rude, vile manner? Indeed, madam, said Sophia, I am almost ashamed to tell you. He caught me in his arms, pulled me down upon the settee, and thrust his hand into my bosom, and kissed it with such violence that I have the mark upon my left breast at this moment. Indeed, said Mrs. Weston. Yes, indeed, madam answered Sophia. My father luckily came in at that instant, or heaven knows what rudeness he intended to have proceeded to. "'I am astonished and confounded,' cries the aunt. "'No woman of the name of Weston hath been ever treated so since we were a family. I would have torn the eyes of her prince out if he had attempted such freedoms with me. It is impossible. Sure, Sophia, you must invent this to raise my indignation against him.' "'I hope, madam,' said Sophia, "'you have too good an opinion of me to imagine me capable of telling an untruth. Upon my soul it is true.' "'I should have stabbed him to the heart had I been present,' returned the aunt. "'Yet surely he could have no dishonourable design. It is impossible. He durst not. Besides, his proposals show he hath not. For they are not only honourable, but generous. I don't know. The age allows too great freedoms.' A distant salute is all I would have allowed before the ceremony. I have had lovers formerly, not so long ago neither, several lovers, though I never would consent to marriage, and I never encouraged the least freedom. It is a foolish custom, and what I never would agree to. No man kissed more of me than my cheek. It is as much as one can bring oneself to give lips up to a husband, and indeed, could I ever have been persuaded to marry, I believe I should not have soon been brought to endure so much.' 
"'You will pardon me, dear madam,' said Sophia, "'if I make one observation. "'You own you have had many lovers, "'and the world knows it, even if you should deny it. "'You refuse them all, and, I am convinced, "'one coronet at least among them.' "'You say true, dear Sophie,' answered she. "'I had once the offer of a title.' "'Why, then,' said Sophia, "'will you not suffer me to refuse this once?' "'It is true, child,' said she. "'I have refused the offer of a title.' but it was not so good an offer, that is, not so very, very good an offer. Yes, madam, said Sophia, but you have had very great proposals from men of vast fortunes. It was not the first, nor the second, nor the third advantageous match that offered itself. I own it was not, said she. Well, madam, continued Sophia, and why may not I expect to have a second, perhaps better than this? You are now but a young woman, and I am convinced would not promise to yield to the first lover of fortune, nay, or of title too. I am a very young woman, and sure I need not despair. Well, my dear, dear Sophie, cries the aunt, what would you have me say? Why, I only beg that I may not be left alone, at least this evening. Grant me that, and I will submit, if you think, after what is past, I ought to see him in your company. Well, I will grant it cries the aunt. Sophie, you know I love you, and can deny you nothing. You know the easiness of my nature. I have not always been so easy. I have been formerly thought cruel, by the man I mean. I was called the cruel Parthenissa. I have broke many a window that has had verses to the cruel Parthenissa in it. Sophie, I was never so handsome as you, and yet I had something of you formerly. I am a little altered. Kingdoms and states, as Tully Cicero says in his epistles, undergo alterations, and so must the human form. Thus runs she on for near half an hour upon herself, and her conquests, and her cruelty, till the arrival of my lord, who, after a most tedious visit, during which Mrs. Weston never once offered to leave the room, retired, not much more satisfied with the aunt than with the niece, for Sophia had brought her aunt into so excellent a temper that she consented to almost everything her niece said and agreed that a little distant behaviour might not be improper to so forward a lover. Thus Sophia, by a little well-directed flattery, for which surely none will blame her, obtained a little ease for herself, and, at least, put off the evil day. And now we have seen our heroine in a better situation than she hath been for a long time before, we will look a little after Mr. Jones, whom we left in the most deplorable situation that can be well imagined. Chapter 5. Mrs. Miller and Mr. Nightingale visit Jones in the prison. When Mr. Allworthy and his nephew went to meet Mr. Weston, Mrs. Miller set forwards to her son-in-law's lodgings, in order to acquaint him with the accident which had befallen his friend Jones, but he had known it long before, from Partridge, for Jones, when he left Mrs. Miller, had been furnished with a room in the same house with Mr. Nightingale. The good woman found her daughter under great affliction on account of Mr. Jones, whom, having comforted as well as she could, she set forwards to the gatehouse, where she heard he was, and where Mr. Nightingale was arrived before her. The firmness and constancy of a true friend is a circumstance so extremely delightful to persons in any kind of distress, that the distress itself, if it be only temporary, and admits of relief, is more than compensated by bringing this comfort with it nor are instances of this kind so rare as some superficial and inaccurate observers have reported. To say the truth, want of compassion is not to be numbered among our general faults. The black ingredient which fouls our disposition is envy. 
hence our eye is seldom i am afraid turned upward to those who are manifestly greater better wiser or happier than ourselves without some degree of malignity while we commonly look downwards on the mean and miserable with sufficient benevolence and pity in fact i have remarked that most of the defects which have discovered themselves in the friendships within my observation have arisen from envy only a hellish vice and yet one from which i have known very few absolutely exempt but enough of a subject which if pursued would lead me too far whether it was that fortune was apprehensive lest jones should sink under the weight of his adversity and that she might thus lose any future opportunity of tormenting him or whether she really abated somewhat of her severity towards him she seemed a little to relax her persecution by sending him the company of two such faithful friends and what is perhaps more rare a faithful servant for partridge though he had many imperfections wanted not fidelity and though fear would not suffer him to be hanged for his master yet the world i believe could not have bribed him to desert his cause while jones was expressing great satisfaction in the presence of his friends partridge brought an account that mr fitzpatrick was still alive though the surgeon declared that he had very little hopes upon which jones fetching a deep sigh nightingale said to him my dear tom why should you afflict yourself so upon an accident which whatever be the consequence can be attended with no danger to you and in which your conscience cannot accuse you of having been the least to blame if the fellow should die what have you done more than taken away the life of a ruffian in your own defence so will the coroner's inquest certainly find it and then you will be easily admitted to bail and though you must undergo the form of a trial yet it is a trial which many men would stand for you for a shilling come come mr jones says mrs miller cheer yourself up i knew you could not be the aggressor and so i told mr allworthy and so he shall acknowledge too before i have done with him jones gravely answered that whatever might be his fate he should always lament the having shed the blood of one of his fellow-creatures as one of the highest misfortunes which could have befallen him but i have another misfortune of the tenderest kind oh mrs miller i have lost what i held most dear upon earth that must be a mistress said mrs miller but come come i know more than you imagine for indeed partridge had blabbed all and i have heard more than you know matters go better i promise you than you think and i would not give blifful sixpence for all the chance which he had of the lady indeed my dear friend indeed answered jones you are an entire stranger to the cause of my grief if you was acquainted with the story you would allow my case admitted of no comfort i apprehend no danger from blifil i have undone myself don't despair replied mrs miller you know not what a woman can do and if anything be in my power i promise you i will do it to serve you it is my duty my son my dear mr nightingale who is so kind to tell me he hath obligations to you on the same account knows it is my duty shall i go to the lady myself i will say anything to her you would have me say thou best of women cries jones taking her by the hand talk not of obligations to me but as you have been so kind to mention it there is a favour which perhaps may be in your power i see you are acquainted with the lady how you came by your information i know not who sits indeed very near my heart if you could contrive to deliver this giving her a paper from his pocket i shall for ever acknowledge your goodness give it me said mrs miller if i see it not in her own possession before i sleep may my next sleep be my last comfort yourself my good young man be wise enough to take warning from past follies and i warrant all shall be well and i shall yet see you happy with the most charming young lady in the world for i so hear from every one she is 
"'Believe me, madam,' said he, "'I do not speak the common cant of one in my unhappy situation. Before this dreadful accident happened, I had resolved to quit a life of which I was become sensible of the wickedness as well as folly. I do assure you, notwithstanding the disturbances I have unfortunately occasioned in your house, for which I heartily ask your pardon, I am not an abandoned profligate. Though I have been hurried into vices, I do not approve a vicious character, nor will I ever, from this moment, deserve it.' Mrs. Miller expressed great satisfaction in these declarations, in the sincerity of which she averred she had an entire faith, and now the remainder of the conversation passed in the joint attempts of that good woman and Mr. Nightingale to cheer the dejected spirits of Mr. Jones, in which they so far succeeded as to leave him much better comforted and satisfied than they found him, to which happy alteration nothing so much contributed as the kind undertaking of Mrs. Miller to deliver his letter to Sophia which he despaired of finding any means to accomplish. For when Black George produced the last from Sophia, he informed Partridge that she had strictly charged him, on pain of having it communicated to her father, not to bring her any answer. He was, moreover, not a little pleased to find he had so warm an advocate to Mr. Allworthy himself in this good woman, who was, in reality, one of the worthiest creatures in the world. After about an hour's visit from the lady, for Nightingale had been with him much longer, they both took their leave, promising to return to him soon, during which Mrs. Miller said she hoped to bring him some good news from his mistress, and Mr. Nightingale promised to inquire into the state of Mr. Fitzpatrick's wound, and likewise to find out some of the persons who were present at the recounter. The former of these went directly in quest of Sophia, whither we likewise shall now attend her. Chapter 6. In which Mrs. Miller pays a visit to Sophia. Access to the young lady was by no means difficult, for, as she lived now on a perfect friendly footing with her aunt, she was at full liberty to receive what visitants she pleased. Sophia was dressing when she was acquainted that there was a gentlewoman below to wait on her. As she was neither afraid nor ashamed to see any of her own sex, Mrs. Miller was immediately admitted. Curtsies and the usual ceremonials between women who are strangers to each other being passed, Sophia said, "'I have not the pleasure to know you, madam.' "'No, madam,' said Mrs. Miller, "'and I must beg pardon for intruding upon you. "'But when you know what has induced me to give you this trouble, I hope—' "'Pray, what is your business, madam?' said Sophia, with a little emotion. "'Madam, we are not alone,' replied Mrs. Miller, in a low voice. "'Go out, Betty,' said Sophia. "'When Betty was departed, Mrs. Miller said, "'I was desired, madam, by a very unhappy young gentleman, to deliver you this letter.' Sophia changed colour when she saw the direction, well knowing the hand, and after some hesitation said, "'I could not conceive, madam, from your appearance, that your business had been of such a nature. Whomever you brought this letter from, I shall not open it. I should be sorry to entertain an unjust suspicion of any one, but you are an utter stranger to me.' "'If you will have patience, madam,' answered Mrs. Miller, "'I will acquaint you who I am, and how I came by that letter.' "'I have no curiosity, madam, to know anything,' cries Sophia, "'but I must insist on your delivering that letter back to the person who gave it you.' Mrs. Miller then fell upon her knees, and in the most passionate terms implored her compassion, to which Sophia answered, "'Sure, madam, it is surprising you should be so very strongly interested in the behalf of this person. I would not think, madam.' "'No, madam,' says Mrs. Miller, "'you shall not think anything but the truth. I will tell you all, and you will not wonder that I am interested.' he is the best-natured creature that ever was born she then began and related the story of mr anderson after this she cried this madam this is his goodness 
but I have much more tender obligations to him. He hath preserved my child. Here, after shedding some tears, she related everything concerning that fact, suppressing only those circumstances which would have most reflected on her daughter, and concluded with saying, "'Now, madam, you shall judge whether I can ever do enough for so kind, so good, so generous a young man, and sure he is the best and worthiest of all human beings.' The alterations in the countenance of Sophia had hitherto been chiefly to her disadvantage, and had inclined her complexion to too great paleness. But she now waxed redder, if possible, than Vermilion, and cried, "'I know not what to say. Certainly what arises from gratitude cannot be blamed. But what service can my reading this letter do your friend, since I am resolved never?' Mrs. Miller fell again to her entreaties, and begged to be forgiven, but she could not, she said, carry it back. "'Well, madam,' says Sophia, "'I cannot help it if you will force it upon me. Certainly you may leave it whether I will or no.' What Sophia meant, or whether she meant anything, I will not presume to determine. But Mrs. Miller actually understood this as a hint, and presently laying the letter down on the table, took her leave, having first begged permission to wait again on Sophia, which request had neither assent nor denial. The letter lay upon the table no longer than till Mrs. Miller was out of sight, for then Sophia opened and read it. This letter did very little service to his cause, for it consisted of little more than confessions of his own unworthiness, and bitter lamentations of despair, together with the most solemn protestations of his unalterable fidelity to Sophia, of which, he said, he hoped to convince her if he had ever more the honour of being admitted to her presence and that he could account for the letter to Lady Bellaston in such a manner that, though it would not entitle him to her forgiveness, he hoped at least to obtain it from her mercy, and concluded with vowing that nothing was ever less in his thoughts than to marry Lady Bellaston. Though Sophia read the letter twice over with great attention, his meaning still remained a riddle to her, nor could her invention suggest to her any means to excuse Jones. She certainly remained very angry with him, though indeed Lady Bellaston took up so much of her resentment that her gentle mind had but little left to bestow on any other person. That lady was most unluckily to dine this very day with her aunt Western, and in the afternoon they were all three, by appointment, to go together to the opera, and thence to Lady Thomas Hatchet's drum. Sophia would have gladly been excused from all, but would not disoblige her aunt, and as to the arts of counterfeiting illness, she was so entirely a stranger to them that it never once entered into her head. When she was dressed, therefore, down she went, resolved to encounter all the horrors of the day, and a most disagreeable one it proved, for Lady Bellaston took every opportunity very civilly and slyly to insult her, to all which her dejection of spirits disabled her from making any return and indeed to confess the truth she was at the very best but an indifferent mistress of repartee another misfortune which befell poor sophia was the company of lord fellamar whom she met at the opera and who attended her to the drum and though both places were too public to admit of any particularities and she was farther relieved by the music at the one place and by the cards at the other she could not however enjoy herself in his company for there is something of delicacy in women which will not suffer them to be even easy in the presence of a man whom they know to have pretensions to them which they are disinclined to favour. Having in this chapter twice mentioned a drum, a word which our posterity, it is hoped, will not understand in the sense it is here applied, we shall, notwithstanding our present haste, stop a moment to describe the entertainment here meant, and the rather as we can in a moment describe it. 
A drum, then, is an assembly of well-dressed persons of both sexes, most of whom play at cards, and the rest do nothing at all, while the mistress of the house performs the part of the landlady at an inn, and, like the landlady of an inn, prides herself in the number of her guests, though she doth not always, like her, get anything by it. No wonder, then, as so much spirits must be required to support any vivacity in these scenes of dullness, that we hear persons of fashion eternally complaining of the want of them, a complaint confined entirely to upper life. How insupportable must we imagine this round of impertinence to have been to Sophia at this time! How difficult must she have found it to force the appearance of gaiety into her looks, when her mind dictated nothing but the tenderest sorrow, and when every thought was charged with tormenting ideas! Night, however, at last restored her to her pillow, where we will leave her to soothe her melancholy at least, though incapable, we fear, of rest, and shall pursue our history, which, something whispers us, is now arrived at the eve of some great event. End of section 60 of Tom Jones